Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, June 7th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's top headlines. A U.S. panel seeks contempt charges against the FBI. Russia and Ukraine trade blame for the collapse of a major dam. Saudi-backed Live Golf merges with the PGA Tour. Iran presents its first hypersonic ballistic missile. U.S. Secretary of State Blinken visits Saudi Arabia. A U.S. LGBTQ group declares a national state of emergency. Convicted spy Robert Hansen dies in prison. An mRNA cancer vaccine is found to reduce the spread of melanoma. Apple launches its first augmented reality headset. And a whistleblower makes claims about a secret UFO retrieval program. In our first story, a U.S. panel will seek contempt of Congress charges against the FBI. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, NPR Online News, Fox News, The Daily Wire, The Washington Post, and The Daily Mail. James Comer, Republican chairman of the House Oversight Committee, said Monday he plans to hold FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt of Congress regarding the FBI's decision not to hand over unclassified information about President Joe Biden's family dealings. After Comer and the oversight panel's top-ranking Democrat, Maryland Representative Jamie Raskin, attended an FBI briefing behind closed doors Monday, Comer claimed the FBI again refused to hand over the unclassified record, saying that contempt of Congress hearings will be initiated Thursday. Comer was presented with the document in question, which she claims details an alleged $5 million bribe involving then-VP Joe Biden and a foreign national. But he said the FBI still violated the subpoena because it didn't turn over the physical document to the committee. Comer claims the bribery allegation is from a confidential FBI source who is a trusted, highly credible informant and has been working with the Bureau for more than 10 years. According to Raskin, the DOJ and the FBI, who called the upcoming contempt vote unwarranted as it continuously demonstrated its commitment to accommodate the committee's request, previously found no evidence to validate the informant's allegations. Biden and his family have repeatedly been accused of corruption by Republicans, with much of the focus being put on Biden's son, Hunter. Well, thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a Republican narrative spin from Daily Caller. The FBI has demonstrated time and again that it cannot be trusted, and the agency needs to be held accountable for not being fully transparent in this investigation. The source in question is highly trusted by the FBI, so it's strange that the agency is being so intransigent regarding Comer's concerns. And Politico brings us the Democratic narrative. Though Republicans continue to put on a show for their constituents, Comer is offering few specifics about these allegations. Even if the entire House GOP found Ray in contempt, it's highly unlikely the DOJ would exercise its power to bring any criminal charges, making this whole fiasco an exercise in political theater. Melissa, I wonder how many people, possibly myself included, who confuse James Comer this person uh, is congressman who's investigating the FBI with James Comey, the former FBI director. I could do without those names being so similar. It is odd how close they are, isn't it? <laughs> we, we were just talking off air about the uh, 
volcano versus Dante's Peak uh, phenomenon of two similar movies coming out at the same time, Armageddon, Deep Impact, etc. cetera. Uh, I think this Comer Comey thing falls under that heading. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And news from the Russia-Ukraine conflict as both sides exchange blame for the breach of a major dam. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, NBC News, and BBC News. The Nova Kakhovka Dam in southern Ukraine collapsed in the early hours of Tuesday, prompting Russia and Ukraine to trade blame for the ecological disaster, which has already caused flooding in dozens of towns and settlements. The dam, built in 1956 as part of the Kakhovka hydroelectric power plant, is 30 meters or 98 feet high and hundreds of meters wide. Upstream from the city of Kherson, it traverses across the massive Dnipro River, which runs through all of Ukraine, including the middle of Kherson Oblast. Russia captured the Kherson region in the first weeks of the war, but in November it announced that its troops withdrew from the western bank of the river in Kherson over fears they would easily be cut off and left vulnerable to attack. In the past several months, both Russia and Ukraine warned that the other side had planned to blow up the dam. The dam was also struck in an attack last November, though responsibility for that incident was never established. While Russia and Ukraine again traded blame for its collapse on Tuesday, an anonymous emergency services official, speaking to Russian media, suggested that there, in fact, had been no attack on the dam overnight, and rather that it collapsed after long-term structural damage. Quote, the dam could not stand it. One support collapsed and flooding began. Either way, the consequences are significant. With significant flooding underway, both Russia and Ukraine announced mass evacuations of civilians from towns and settlements under their control. The collapse also threatens the water supply to Crimea, annexed by Russia in 2014, as well as the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, Europe's largest, both of which draw their supplies from the reservoir north of the dam. It will also wash away military fortifications. Thanks, Scott, for the facts on that story. We'll begin with a pro-Ukraine narrative from Pravda. In blowing up the Kakovka Dam, Russia has committed an egregious war crime, as well as the largest man-made ecological disaster in Europe in decades. It must pay the price for this act of eco-terrorism. And the pro-Russia narrative from TASS. What would Russia gain from cutting off the water supply to Crimea, which it considers its territory? This is unequivocally an act of sabotage carried out by Ukraine, probably to distract from its already faltering counteroffensive. We've also got an establishment critical narrative from The Atlantic. As much as this is a hot war between Russia and Ukraine, it's also an information war where both sides are disseminating vast amounts of propaganda for their own geopolitical objectives. It's very easy to make snap judgments and be seduced by simple narratives. A serious examination is needed before any conclusions can be reached, including exploring the possibility of a simple structural failure causing this tragic disaster. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 46% chance that Russian territory will be reduced by at least 1% before the year 2040. Why would Russia blow up a dam that goes to Crimea, where it is purporting to ha- to have control, mm-hmm. unless they wanted us to think that why would they do that? If they wanted us to think that they think that we think that they know, that we know that they think, 
and then my head explodes. I would say let's both sides, you know, strap on our our bags and start fixing the dam. And whichever one does a better job fixing it, like turn it into a reality show. Whoever does mm. a better job fixing it, they weren't the one who did it and blame the other side. Oh, that's great. And then they uh, and they all kind of like develop friendships along well, the process. And then ideally, they all kind of we get along. all learn a lesson from this. Yes. But at the very least, you know, we see some uh, sweaty guys working on a dam and it gets fixed quicker. Should, we, should they do it with their shirts off or? I mean, ideally, you know, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't be a war crime. <laughs> Live Golf agrees to merge with the PGA Tour. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, CNBC, ESPN, the Associated Press, CBS, and Reuters. After more than a year of hostility and litigation, the Saudi-backed Live Golf announced Tuesday it has merged with rival PGA, ending all pending legal disputes. The deal, which also includes the PGA European Tour, called the DP World Tour, will create a collectively owned for-profit entity that will benefit from the Saudi Public Investment Fund, or PIF, controlled by the Saudi prince. PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monaham acknowledged that there's been a lot of tension since the PIF formed Live Golf and spent billions to lure away some of the PGA's biggest names. But he said the move was needed to unify the game of golf. Monaghan has repeatedly criticized Liv and golfers such as Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson for their relationship with the Saudi regime. Meanwhile, 11 well-known golfers, headlined by Phil Mickelson, filed an, a- filed an antitrust lawsuit against the PGA last year, which Liv joined, prompting a countersuit from the PGA Tour. While exact details about the merger aren't fully known, reports say the new golf entity will have a board of directors, the majority of which will be appointed by the PGA Tour. The PIF will also make new investments and have exclusive rights to invest more in the unknown business. The Saudi government, which has invested heavily in sports leagues, has been criticized for its alleged human rights abuses. All right, Melissa, we have a Narrative A from the PGA Tour official website. After more than a year of fighting, the PGA and Live Golf have come together to reach an agreement that will grow the game of golf and benefit all fans and stakeholders. With the generous investment from the PIF and the global reach of the PGA Tour, golf will be promoted to new parts of the world, and fans will be able to experience the game in new and improved ways. This collaborative effort ends hostility that has dragged golf down and will pave the way for a bright future. And Narrative B, provided by Esquire. The PGA sold out for Saudi cash after spending the last year criticizing golfers who left the tour for bigger paychecks from Live. This merger is a massive betrayal of the golfers and fans who stuck with the PGA Tour and decided against participating in the Saudi-backed league. Saudi Arabia's government has yet to be held accountable for its human rights abuses, yet it continues to get its way by throwing money at people and entities. The PGA should be ashamed of itself. Iran reportedly presents its first hypersonic ballistic missile. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, ABC News, The Guardian, Al Arabia, and Daily Sabah. On Tuesday, Iran's state media unveiled pictures of the Fatah, the state's first domestically made hypersonic ballistic missile. It was unveiled at a ceremony attended by President Ebrahim Raisi, 
and commanders of the Revolutionary Guards Corps. The name, which approximately translates to The Opener, was chosen by Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, with the missile being claimed to have a range of 1,400 kilometers, 870 miles, and reach a speed of Mach 15. Ricey said that with its creation, a deterrent power had been formed, with such power being an anchor of lasting security and peace for the region. Furthermore, Amir al-Hajizadeh, head of Iran's Revolutionary Guards aerospace program, claimed that no system existed that could rival or counter this missile. Only four other countries in the world assert that they have such a weapon. While there has been no evidence of a successful launch of the missile by Iran, Hajizadeh commented that a ground test had occurred in which the rocket's motor was placed on a stand and fired to check its correct functioning. In response to the unveiling, the U.S. Treasury Department has sanctioned seven individuals and six entities in Iran, China, and Hong Kong for their role in the creation of the missile, stating the agency would continue to target those that supported Tehran's ballistic missile production as well as other programs. Ever since Washington pulled out of a 2015 nuclear deal with Iran, choosing to impose renewed sanctions on the state, Iran has suspended its previously agreed restrictions on nuclear activities, while also limiting the ability of the International Atomic Energy Agency to monitor its actions. Thank you, Scott. We'll begin this round of spins with a pro-Iran narrative. This comes from the Tehran Times. While ironically, America's withdrawal from the 2015 agreement was intended to curb Iran's missile program, instead, Tehran has achieved a historic feat in joining an exclusive international military elite. The Fatah missile is a response to threats from both Israel and the U.S., and because Iran's military technology continues to make significant progress, hostile actors will now think twice about inflicting aggression. Iran International brings us the anti-Iran narrative. Available facts concerning Iran's latest missile cast doubt on the state's claim of success, with current technology producing similar missiles of a speed of around 5 to 8 Machs. Iran's claim of Mach 15 seems like an exaggeration. In addition, no information was given concerning whether such a speed would be during initial phases, or rather when reaching a target. With many Russian claims of a hypersonic weapon being proved wrong during the Ukraine war, Iran's unveiling should be taken with a generous pinch of salt. And we have another nerd narrative here from the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's a 3% chance of the U.S. rejoining the Iran nuclear deal by 2024. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken began a three-day visit to Saudi Arabia on Tuesday and is expected to meet with senior Saudi officials and possibly the kingdom's de facto ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, to mend frayed U.S.-Saudi relations. During his visit, Blinken is set to hold talks on bilateral economic and security ties and attend a meeting of the U.S. Gulf Cooperation Council, as well as a conference on combating Islamic militants, the U.S. State Department said. Blinken's visit will also include human rights-related topics, but will center on securing Saudi cooperation in areas such as ending the war in Yemen and promoting a diplomatic deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel, according to U.S. officials. Addressing the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee on Monday, Blinken said Washington has a real national security interest in advocating for the normalization of diplomatic ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia and will raise the issue during his visit to the kingdom. 
Blinken's trip to Saudi Arabia, the second high-level U.S. visit following that of National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan's trip in May, comes amid a shift in Riyadh's foreign policy, highlighted by a recent China-brokered rapprochement between the kingdom and Iran. On Sunday, Saudi Arabia, the world's largest oil exporter, announced during an OPEC Plus meeting that it will cut oil production by 1 million barrels per day for at least a month starting in July to boost faltering oil prices, a move likely to further strain U.S.-Saudi ties. Thanks for that update, Melissa. We have an establishment-critical narrative from Global Times. Blinken's trip to Saudi Arabia is Washington's latest desperate attempt to preserve its declining regional sway by seeking to tailor regional developments to its own interests. However, the countries of the Middle East have woken up and will not allow the U.S. to disrupt the tide of reconciliation in the region, as the U.S. seeks to create more division, turmoil, and conflict to advance its strategic interests. The Middle East has a historic opportunity to put an end to Washington's destructive impact and create a new destiny supported by other powers like China. Here's the pro-establishment narrative from El Pais. Blinken's visit to Saudi Arabia offers a realistic opportunity for the U.S. to restore strained bilateral relations. This is also because despite recent disagreements, Washington remains Riyadh's most important security partner and the only power willing to protect its oil exports through the Persian Gulf. Blinken's job is to stabilize relations in line with U.S. priorities and signal that Washington remains an important regional player. The U.S. must not allow actors like China or Russia, who have nefarious goals for the Middle East, to gain the upper hand in the region. And Narrative C comes from Bloomberg. Ahead of his trip, Blinken signaled that the U.S. would like Saudi Arabia to join countries such as Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, and the UAE in normalizing its relations with Israel under the Abraham Accords. However, it's unlikely that Washington can meet all of Riyadh's demands. To consolidate its regional influence, Washington shouldn't make the mistake of giving too much weight to this prestige project during Blinken's trip and leave it to Riyadh and Tel Aviv to determine the right time to establish normal diplomatic relations. And another nerd narrative here from the Metaculous Prediction community, saying there's a 57% chance that Saudi Arabia will normalize relations with Israel by 2031 if Iran gets a nuclear bomb by then. A U.S.-based advocacy group declares an emergency for the LGBTQ community. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Axios, The Hill, CNN, Associated Press, and Breitbart. For the first time in its 40-year history, the U.S. advocacy group Human Rights Campaign, or HRC, on Tuesday declared a state of emergency for the LGBTQ community, citing an alleged unprecedented and dangerous spike in anti-LGBTQ legislative assaults. The declaration also cited the passage of over 75 laws in over 12 states that target the community, as well as at least 525 LGBTQ bills introduced in 41 states, including 220 specifically targeting transgender people. Along with the declaration, HRC will also roll out a digital guidebook which includes health and safety measures, an outline of states' laws, Know Your Rights, Facts, and Information for LGBTQ plus Travelers and Those Living in Certain States. The guidebook also includes instructions on filing civil rights complaints, tips for moving and finding employment, and details on how to participate in local advocacy. 
The laws HRC is responding to include GOP-led bills ranging from restricting pronoun usage and bathroom access to medical care, such as the pending Louisiana bill that would bar K-12 teachers from teaching sexual orientation and gender identity topics. This comes alongside Pride Month, with Pride organizers in some Florida towns canceling events for the month following a series of LGBTQ bills. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, beginning with a progressive narrative from the Human Rights Campaign. The onslaught of anti-LGBTQ legislation across the U.S. is very real and incredibly dangerous to both the physical, emotional, and political safety of gender and sexual minorities. That being said, whether they're in hostile territories like Florida or the many other states that welcome LGBTQ people, HRC and its allies are prepared to fight tooth and nail to restore the legal and health care rights they've fought for and achieved over the decades. And the conservative narrative comes from Washington Examiner. The growing cries of victimhood from so-called LGBTQ plus advocates are a facade to mask an extreme political movement that many LGBTQ plus members don't identify with. The woke modern activists, spearheaded by the newer, more radical transgender movement, frequently attack Christianity and biology, have led to the confusion and sexualization of children, and aim to replace the longstanding moral code of the West with a liberal moral order. And we have another nerd narrative, this one saying there's a 50% chance that at least 10.83% of American adults will identify as LGBTQ plus by 2070. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. There was a, another story today uh, related to this where uh, like Target's uh, shares dropped, mm-hmm. plummeted uh, because they have a, a line of... of uh, Pride clothes and yeah. people in the South were knocking over, protesters were knocking over the, mostly the children's clothes is what they were upset about. Yeah, I uh, I like Target as a store. I find it pleasant to shop there. But there is one Target, the one near Northgate Mall, which is not up to snuff. Have you ever been to that Target? The, uh, not the in Northgate. many years. It was, it's not, it's, it's not a very good store. Like has I don't, I'm not sure it's stance on pride, but the store is just way worse than any other target I've ever been to. And this, it, the Northgate target, just, I don't know, something about that place is not so good. And I'm, and I'm generally pro target. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not anti all target necessarily, but I will take a firm stance publicly and in front of the world that the Northgate target is not, not so good. Northgate, <laughs> Seattle. You, you went from Westwood Village to, yeah. to that Target? Yeah. yeah, yeah the standards. Westwood Village Target is is nice. Yeah, I yeah, like that one. I used great, to live I used to target. live right a walking distance. I used to walk to the Starbucks that was not in that Target. There's another Starbucks. I'm not walking to the Target oh, yeah, Starbucks. Yeah. But there's another Starbucks. I would walk with my dog to that Target and uh Oh, okay. So we yeah, we lived that like close. Twenty sixth or Barton or something. I preferred walking to Fresh Flowers and White Center. Now that's oh, a good coffee shop. I love and slash bakery. Uh, I love Fresh Flowers in uh, in in White Center. That might be. Hmm. So many good coffee shops, but in terms of mixing their, you know, if you're going to take in the whole experience of like the baked goods and the coffee together, I think yes. White Center. Fresh flowers might have neither the best of either, but in terms of both together, that's they're the yeah. best. 
Well, that's important because in both in both on their own are still pretty elevated. Oh, they're both so, really good. I mean, I'm talking combined. rarefied air here. We're talking we're 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 really getting into the uh, the first world measuring of the best of the best. And oh, yeah. I, and, did you, and when did I say you hear they're how not, excited I got about Oh yeah, this how is how elevated this coffee right. and pastries were. <laughs> My world is very small. Convicted spy Robert Hansen dies in prison. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, BBC News, The Independent, Reuters, USA Today, and The Hill. A U.S. Bureau of Prisons spokesperson has revealed that former FBI agent and convicted Soviet spy Robert Hansen was found dead in his prison cell on Monday morning. Hansen, whose cause of death is yet unconfirmed, served in the FBI from 1976 until his arrest in 2001 and subsequent life sentence in 2002 for espionage. He received over $1.4 million in cash, diamonds, and money paid into Russian accounts for sending classified material to Russia and the USSR. In 1979, Hansen approached the USSR and spied on behalf of the KGB, as well as its successor agency, SVR, for 20 years. His 2001 arrest followed a month-long FBI investigation. Approximately 300 personnel were involved in the investigation, which culminated in him getting caught making a dead drop of classified information at a park in suburban Virginia. The FBI says Hansen provided Russian and Soviet handlers with approximately 6,000 pages of valuable documentary material, as well as 26 computer disks under the alias of Ramon Garcia. He also allegedly helped expose a secret U.S. tunnel under the Soviet embassy in Washington used for eavesdropping. After the 79-year-old was unresponsive, it was noted that staff requested emergency medical service to try and save his life, with the spokesperson adding that no staff or inmates were injured. All right, thanks for those clandestine facts, Melissa. We have a pro-Russia narrative from RT. The story of Hansen explains less about Russian espionage than it does about American incompetence. Now holding an abysmal espionage record in post-Soviet Russia, it's thanks to the likes of Hansen that an entire portfolio of CIA and FBI spies were found and rounded up, with America never fully recovering from the blow to its credibility. Here's the anti-Russia narrative from The Independent. A surprisingly devout and conservative family man, Hansen's ruthlessly efficient espionage has been deemed by many as one of the worst intelligence disasters in U.S. history. A story of shocking betrayal, becoming one of America's most notorious criminals, his death within the maximum security complex is an inglorious end to a life of treachery. And the forecasting community at Metaculus predicts that there's a 20% chance of a U.S.-Russia war before the year 2050. A new mRNA skin cancer treatment reduces spread by 65%. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, Reuters, and U.S. News & World Report. An mNRA cancer vaccine produced by Moderna and Merck could reduce the risk of melanoma spreading, for patients in stages 3 and 4 of the disease by 65% when used in conjunction with immunotherapy, according to clinical data released on Monday. mRNA technology deployed in many COVID vaccines has long been hoped to have efficacy as a cancer treatment. The genetic makeup of a patient's tumor is mapped, and a targeted vaccine is administered in hopes of triggering an immune response against cancer without harming healthy tissue. 
Earlier studies showed that combined mNRA immunotherapy treatment was 44% more effective in cutting the risk of death or cancer recurrence than treatment using Merck's Keytruda immunotherapy drug by itself. After presenting the data to the American Society of Clinical Oncology on Monday, Moderna has told investors that they are seeking faster regulatory approval for treatment as residual uncertainty dissipates. A Phase three confirmatory study is set to launch by Q3 of this year. The clinical trial studied 157 patients who had their skin cancer surgically removed, administering vaccine and Keytruda dosages every three weeks over the course of a year. As roughly 100,000 Americans face melanoma diagnoses every year, the FDA has sped up the development and review of the prospective treatment. Development on the mNRA treatment began in 2016 as medical companies such as BioNTech and Gritstone Bio published promising results from their mNRA research. Thank you, Scott. And here's Narrative A from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Anyone who has kept their finger on the pulse of medical technology knows that mRNA treatment is the future and can be used to fight everything from the common cold to AIDS. A steady stream of promising results can give us hope that the next generation of safe, personalized cancer treatment is on the horizon. Vital research is continuing at a blistering pace. And Narrative B comes from Biospace. While this is another positive development towards cancer vaccines, there is still much research to be done and concerns to be addressed. The Merck-Moderna data says nothing about the quality or quantity of the immune response triggered against the tumors. We can only hope these results stimulate more high-quality research in order to confirm the efficacy of these treatments, but a great deal of additional study is required. Apple launches its first augmented reality headset. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News. The Financial Times, Variety, Euronews, Reuters, and Investors Business Daily. On Monday, Apple unveiled its first augmented reality, or AR, headset in its first major hardware launch since the introduction of the iPhone about a decade ago. According to Apple CEO Tim Cook, the spatial computing device can be used to play video games and watch movies on large virtual screens, as well as help teams collaborate on multiple video calls. The Vision Pro, which includes Apple's first 3D camera, reportedly uses eye and hand movements and voice input for navigation instead of external controllers to provide ultra-high resolution with about 23 million pixels across two displays. Since the headset, reportedly equipped with 12 cameras, six microphones, and multiple sensors, doesn't need physical controllers, the user will have to plug it into a power outlet or a portable battery attached to the headset at all times. The headset's starting price of $3,499 is more than three times the cost of the most expensive headset in Meta's line of mixed and virtual reality devices. Apple shares hit an all-time high of $182.95 on news of the announcement, but shares ended the day lower Monday at $179.58. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. The Washington Post brings us Narrative A. While the new headset may seamlessly blend the real and the virtual world, as Apple claims, Vision Pro's hefty cost, clunky design, and separate wired battery pack and narrow range of applications are likely to deter even wealthy buyers. 
The fact that the much-awaited announcement did not excite Wall Street shows Vision Pro may not immediately be a big hit. Here's Narrative B from the Indian Express. Skepticism aside, Vision Pro is revolutionary as it can replace your TV, laptop, high-end camera, and smartphone. It may be tempting to judge Apple's latest offering, but the headset could be a highly advanced wearable system adorned with valuable features that can change how we work and play, using only our voice, eyes, and hands. And the cynical narrative comes from PC Magazine. The iPhone manufacturer is entering an emerging field where rivals have, up until now, yet to excite customers. Moreover, there needs to be more evidence of a big market for wearable tech. Vision Pro may be the most advanced consumer-available VR headset ever, but because it will most likely fail to appeal to the general public, chances are it will soon vanish into oblivion. And we have a nerd narrative, this one saying there's a 67% chance that there will be more VR headset sales than AR headset sales in 2025. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. So quick update on my vestibular system. Obviously, Mm. I can't use this machine, but... Uh. uh, I was in Manhattan uh, this past weekend and they have these uh, right next to the Intrepid by like uh, on the Hudson side there. There's a uh, right near the Javits Center, that area. There's a couple boats that are like restaurants that go out on the Hudson and then they go out for like an hour long tour. And one of them's a lobster like seafood boat and not for catching lobster, just a restaurant. And one of them's a Mexican like taqueria thing. I went on the Taqueria one and immediately regretted it. I mean, it was swaying. It was it was doing whatever. I didn't. <laughs> nothing ended up happening, but I didn't, you know, really enjoy the ride as much as I might have wished I would have. But soon after we got underway, it wasn't bad. It was just mainly the when it was sitting at the dock, waving back and forth. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was cool. But I I mean, I shouldn't be playing in those waters, literally. <laughs> so you you will probably never even try on a VR headset. I, I mean, I'm curious about it. Like, I'm into like it, it seems like something I would be into. I'm like, I'm into cool stuff. I mean, they even have you know simpler ones that hook into your video game systems now, and you can be like in the cockpit of a Tie Fighter, or you can be Batman for an hour. And all that, believe me, I want to do all that stuff. But I I don't know. I I don't. I'd be curious to see if if that uh, clears itself because you are because it's so real looking that you feel like. <sighs> I mean, well, the, the, here's the thing: like, don't get a VR and, and be like, "Let's go on a boat race." Like, don't play a boat race game. Oh right, in yes, your I'd VR. be. Yeah, I'd be. Uh, yeah, that's not good. Yeah, Maybe I don't know. You I could mean, use VR to like say, "Oh, I'm in, I'm on a sturdy mountain." There was a time when I couldn't play, like. Um, first person shooter games like in the 90s when like doom and GoldenEye and that stuff was out mm. um i wasn't keen on playing those and i played them enough where i like now it doesn't bother me really yeah um so maybe i could just force my way through it i mean like i've said before on the show i used to ride the bart train in san francisco to oakland and after a couple of days it didn't bother me but that's a pretty straightforward ride you know yeah. it's not the same as this boat ride i mean I'm not That's sure what it would take, but, and also like, do I even feel like doing it? Like there's a, if, even if there's a pain period to get through, then it's fine. Like, do I need to have a taco on the Hudson river? Not, not really. Yeah. Have the taco and then go look at the river. According to a whistleblower, the U S has a secret UFO retrieval program. Here are the facts as agreed upon by intelligencer. 
The Debrief, Fox News, News Nation, and the New York Post. David Grutch, a former member of the U.S. Office of Naval Intelligence's Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAP, task force, has alleged that the U.S. has evidence of intact and partially intact craft of non-human origin, according to a report published Monday by The Debrief. Grush alleges that the U.S. has been recovering exotic technology for decades and that material science testing, vehicle morphologies, and unique atomic arrangements and radiological signatures have shown some recovered materials to be the product of so-called non-human intelligence. In his whistleblower complaint to Congress and the Intelligence Community Inspector General, or ICIG, Grush says UAP programs have continued without appropriate oversight in what he alleges is a publicly unknown Cold War. While he says he can't reveal the evidence for national security reasons, Grush claimed senior UAP officials provided him with documents and testimony of a secret UFO program that has allegedly also retrieved dead pilots. The ICIG reportedly found Grush's complaint that UAP-related materials were being withheld from Congress credible and urgent in 2022, while according to the debrief, the Department of Defense cleared Grush's claims for publication in April 2023. However, a DOD spokesperson cast doubt on the allegations, claiming that the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, previously the UAP task force, hasn't found any verifiable information to substantiate the claims. Thank you for that very interesting story. And we'll end today with this round of spins, starting with the establishment critical narrative from Politico. While there's yet to be concrete evidence of extraterrestrial life, this report certainly raises questions. Grush's integrity is above reproach. Corroborating evidence strongly points to the existence of UAP material of non-human origin. While these claims may not yet be verified, what is certain is that the government is far from transparent, begging the question, are we truly alone in the universe? And the pro-establishment narrative comes from the Washington Post. Despite decades of public fascination and government attention, there's still no evidence to suggest the possibility of human extraterrestrial contact. The media has been running away with claims of UFO proof based on sketchy reports and leaps of logic, and all reporting that claims aliens are responsible for UAPs leaves the realm of rationality and enters the domain of unverifiable conspiratorial thinking. And here's our final nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 20% chance conclusive evidence for extraterrestrial life will be discovered in our solar system by 2050. Well, the smartest person I know, who's probably also the smartest person you know, uh, says that he doesn't think that there's uh, extraterrestrial life in uh, in our purview. What do you think about that? He could totally be right. That's true. Yeah. And that is just what they'd want us to think, too. Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, June 7th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download our apps on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.
Thank you.